The following presentation by Monument Wealth Management LLC is intended for general information purposes only. Please listen to additional important disclosures at the end of this presentation. Welcome to Off the Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the question, what is the point of my wealth? And what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? With over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, vice president and partner at Monument, are skilled at helping people think through these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram, at Monument Wealth, and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. And we're back with another great market episode. Of course, we have Dave here. Hi, Dave. Hey, good to see you in person still, which is awesome. And then we have Monuments Portfolio Manager, Aaron Hay. Hey, Aaron. Hi, guys. Good to be here. And we have a new voice on the podcast today. We're really excited to welcome Nate Tonziger to both the podcast and to Monument. Happy to be here. So Nate joined the team in June 2022 as our Portfolio Management Associate. He has a certificate in investment performance measurement. So we're so excited to have him. So Nate, tell us a little bit more though about your background, both you know professional and personal. Sure. So originally grew up out in a small farm town out in the Midwest. I like to joke, not really a joke, but more cows than people in the town that I grew up in. <laughs> So after graduating from UW-Madison, worked at an independent RIA out in that area, got licensed up, started working with clients, eventually made the move out to the East Coast and really have enjoyed it. You know, small, very different than a small farm town, but I still enjoy it. A lot of community out here. Worked at another RIA that worked with retail clients and then moved over here to Monument. So excited to be part of the team and a part of the podcast. You know, I've listened to a few episodes, so first time with the mic in front of me. Looking forward to it. Since you are a new voice, I kind of want to start by, before I bring uh, Dave and Aaron into the conversation, I want to start with a little state of Nate. Tell us what's on your mind. Kind of what what things have you been reading? What have you been thinking about in terms of the markets? And state of Nate. I love it. Yeah, That's right? Great. Thank state you. of Nate. Thank you. I, we're going to have to come up with something like Dave. I'll, I'll brainstorm I don't know. for it's you It's time. Aaron. We're going to save for Dave or something. <laughs> Let's work on that, please. Right, exactly. Jessica has sprung that on us, and I got to say, big fan of it. So who knows, maybe recurring bit on the way. State and Nate, two big topics that I'm thinking about, I think, is kind of what's on almost everyone's mind, is inflation and Fed rate hikes. You know, I had a whole big presentation, type A planner over here, and yesterday a CPI number came out that completely changed what I was going to say. Not in any substantial way, but just in the details. You know, we're seeing inflation start to moderate which is a good thing. We need things like that. We're seeing some of the wage pressures slow down. We're seeing airline fares were one of the big decliners in the recent report and energy as well. You know, those are two highlighted areas that I think a lot of people have been waiting to see. The one we didn't see yesterday is food prices. Food prices are still remaining elevated up 10% over year over year. But on an overall basis, it seems like year over year, the peak may be in for inflation. Now, The real question is, is how long does it last and where does it moderate to? So yes, we might be moderating from nine, but it seems like we're on a trend towards where is the ending path? I wish I could tell you. I think the Fed wishes they could tell you, but no one knows where that ending point is going to be. So while we're seeing some positive movement in inflation, I think the market's responding to that. Really, we're going to need to see a lot more of it. It was just the first step. 
this is the first one and by no means is a trend anyway. Now, moving on to the second point, Fed rate hikes. The Fed is battling inflation, and they remain committed, and they continue to say that. Now, a lot of what yesterday's report, I think, investors latched onto was a moderation and a hopeful Fed pivot. Maybe too early to do that. The Fed is still remaining very committed to reducing inflation, is willing to risk a recession to do it. And I know it's a favorite topic here. I'm sure we'll cover it at some point. Is there a recession and what to do about it? But the Fed and the markets are really aligned. And that's what you're seeing. You know, right now there's a tool I like to use through the market exchanges, which attempts to price in the Fed movement. Currently, they're projecting year-end rates around 325, 350. The Fed is really about in that same range majority. Yes, there's some that think we need to go more aggressive, but I think at Powell's last meeting, he was right around 3.4 is where the committee is year-end. So if the market is pricing in about what the Fed thinks, it can change very quickly, but they're right along with it. You know, we're fighting the battle with the Fed and the market's forward looking. So why have we seen some market rally? I think they're starting to see the light that might be at the end of the tunnel. Now it could be fake light. It might not happen, but it seems like there's some out there. So state and Nate focusing on inflation, focusing on rate hikes, and really can the market kind of go along with the Fed? Because it is uncertain. There is volatility to come and by no means do we have the answers now. Yeah, that's great. I just recently wrote a blog where I talked about, does it really matter whether we're in a recession or not? You can extrapolate that out. Like, does it really matter where inflation is? I look at it and I say, you know, it really matters what's happening with the market. And maybe a month or so back, I, I wrote a blog on inflation where I talked about, hey, I, I kind of think it has a lot to do with the money supply and the M2 money supply and how that peaked 14 months ago. And I'm just kind of wondering if if we're actually going to continue to see this inflation go down just because we are 14 months past where M2 peaked out. And so, I mean, here's what I think. And again, this is fun to talk about, maybe a little academic, but irrelevant to the bigger idea of like, have a plan, stick to it. The Dave Armstrong Monument Wealth Management broken record on that. But if inflation keeps going down, the market's going to keep doing better. I mean, I think that it's the, everybody's watching it and they're saying, well, if inflation's going up, they're going to keep tightening rates. And the more they keep tightening rates, the more likely a recession is to have, have happened. So we're going to discount back in the market and the market's going to go down. So if you take all that and you reverse it and you do the George Costanza, I'm going to do everything different. I'm going to have chicken salad instead of tuna salad. Then you can say, okay, if it's true that inflation will keep going down because we've had peak M2 money supply 14 months ago and Inflation keeps going down, so it's going to lower the expectation that the Fed's going to keep raising interest rates, so the market's going to get excited about that. Because I think all of this is baked in already. Like, I think the probability of a recession is baked in already, because that's not that's not a big story. You can't turn on the news without hearing about recession. So, to me, I think that's baked in. I think high inflation's baked in. I think interest rate increases are baked in. And to the extent that they are continue as already predicted... And if any of those things change, well, then of course the market could react to that. But if we keep seeing inflation coming down, we keep seeing the expectation, or we continue to believe that interest rate hikes by the Fed are going to stay on par with what everybody is already predicting, I think we may have seen the, the worst of this, hopefully. But you change any of those data points and you could give back everything that we've gone up in the past month, because July was actually a pretty darn good month for the and so far, August is shaping up to be a good month, too. So I know it makes everybody feel better. Yeah, speaking of, of inflation, and Nate, you laid out a lot of data points there. I think the thing that's really infuriating, if you want to use that term, is inflation 
the expectation was what, Nate, 8.7% came in at 8.5, 8.4. I don't know what the exact number was. You telling me that just because we had, you know, two tenths, three tenths of a percentage, you know, not increase, but a better reading added how many billion dollars worth of market cap in a single day. I think it tells you a few things, just how forward-looking the stock markets really are, how, I don't want to say unpredictable necessarily, of course they are, but just how maybe counterintuitive they are as well. I don't think if you go out to the average person on the street and ask them, you say, hey, you have an expectation for an inflation number that's this. If it comes in here, what would you expect the market to do? I think a lot of people that are actually in the industry would have thought that, hey, yeah, if we get a better inflation number, even you know two-tenths of a percentage better, the markets are probably going to go higher when the average person, I don't think the average person's out there going, oh, wow, look at this. Instead of 8.7%, it's 8.5% because that's something else that I think a lot of people know but maybe haven't been able to vocalize that just because you're getting a lower inflation number, it doesn't mean that prices are coming down necessarily. It just means that they're going up at a slower rate, right? So disinflation is not deflation. So that's just another little nuance to, to consider there. I'll start with the short term and then I'll ask the same question in the long term. Do you guys think that the market rebound that we saw in July and have seen in August, is that going to continue in the short term, in your opinion? Well, you know, just some data to kind of level set the conversation, especially as people are listening, but using July 1st as the, as the beginning of the quarter, the S&P 500 is up a little over 11%. And you know what's interesting about that is a 10% gain, and I want anybody to say what good news they have heard prior to yesterday's inflation report. What good news on the market has come out since July 1st? I say none. I don't have an obvious number for you. Jessica, to your point, is the mark, you know, are we going to continue to go up? It doesn't really matter because in the various means that we manage money at Monument, we have mechanisms for doing this. But I would say yes. But what's funny is, is if we were sitting here having the same conversation, sitting around the same table in June, it would probably be a different, different feeling, a different story because nothing changes narrative like price, right? That's just a simple fact. People are feeling pretty good right now. They really are. Not to say they're feeling a lot better. They're feeling a a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, 11% on no positive news is going to reinforce just another thing, but which is like, you know, people think that they can make investment decisions based off the news. And if you were making investment decisions, let's just say you're in cash right now, you know, it's July 1st. I'm just going to wait for some better news to come around. I, I just don't feel good putting money to the money back to work right now. Okay, great. I'm going to wait until I feel better. Well, what is feel better? Because that's 11% gain on absolutely no good news. What what would make you feel better? So now they're like, okay, great. I'll put it to work now. Or geez, I, you know, the only piece of good news we've had is this inflation report. I'm going to wait until I hear a little bit more good news. This goes back to the whole, I can't quote the statistics off the top of my head, but there's a lot of charts out there and I'll throw in in the next blog I write. But what happens when you're out of the market on the best Days Like if you were not in the market yesterday, that would seriously degrade your overall performance returns. There's all kinds of studies out there that show that, but this just goes to saying, you know, you can't really trust your gut. You can't really trust the news. You can't wait for better news because we had an 11% rally off of absolutely terrible news over the past 30 days. Well, not terrible news, but certainly not anything glowing. 
Well, and I think that gets to Aaron's point about the markets being forward-looking, right? The markets are looking through. And, you know, one of the strategies we use here is a big trend-following strategy. And there's six indicators that we use to set the monthly allocation. And, you know, currently three of the indicators based on economic data, which is more, you know, looking backwards and kind of trying to see what's going on in the economy, those are all pointing towards a negative trend or a risk-off trend. Capital markets, those three are all positive, looking for risk. So you're seeing the interesting break here. You're getting economic data that is showing negative or a negative trend, while the market data is maybe already looking through some of the quote-unquote recession forward. And, you know, that allocation moves. You know, we were in cash previously. I think you're starting to see some kind of trend possibly get formed, which is why you're seeing the split of the factors. Yeah, you bring up a good point there, Nate, and this kind of dovetails with what Dave said. Dave, you had mentioned a kind of a hypothetical investor who said, I want to wait out in cash until I, I feel better, which I'll point to that, that same model that Nate's talking about. That's if for longtime listeners, readers, you know, clients, it's their flexible asset allocation model. We call it FAA. And no bones about it, we actually got caught in cash in July in that model. And I'll, I'll make a caveat saying that we have very few people that would own exclusively that model. So I don't want you to think that this is representative of all clients and all portfolios, but a model like that, that can get caught off sides in cash. Yeah. So the S and P was up 9% in the month of July. That model was sitting with close to 80% in cash, but to Dave's point, and this is where I'd say it's, you can ride out a storm in cash, but you have to have a mechanism for re-engaging the market, right? You can't just go based off of feel. You have to have some sort of objective milestone or mile marker that gets you out of the market and gets you back in. So that's why having a repeatable process and not relying on any sort of, you know, intuition is important. Now I want to turn to the long term, my same question, as far as your guys' thoughts on a market rebound continuing on the long term, because I, I do want to point to Dave put out a blog on August 10th, where I think Dave, you kind of said that your feeling for a recession potentially in the next 12 months, you, you actually feel that it's more likely now. Yeah. So I took a look at that and I actually do think that based on some of the modeling and statistics that we look at, that there are indicators that say the probability of a recession is going up. And some of the indicators that we actually follow, like the 28 different yield curves and you know, over about 68% of them are, are inverted right now, which is almost assures that there will be a, a recession in the future. I think it's technically, it's like within the next eight months, we may even be in one now. Again, at the end of the blog, I kind of get into this little snip about how like, don't pay attention to the arguments over the, whether we're in a recession or not, it's a bunch of bullshit and the, a lot of politics in there, irrelevant to us. But I do think that a lot of the indicators that we follow are suggesting that there will be a recession. But then you go back to Aaron's point. It's like, okay, let's just say we are in a recession right now or we're about to have one. I don't think it really matters whether we're in a recession or not. It matters what the market's going on. So, I mean, if we're in a recession now, but we just had an 11% rebound off the bottom, does it really matter if we're in a recession right now? Because it really matters what more the market's doing. So, even though I do think that some of the indicators that we follow are suggesting that there is a much more higher probability that we are either in a recession or will be having one very soon, I then counter that with, I'm not sure how much it really matters because the market is already probably baking in that there's going to be a recession and we've already had this 11% rebound off the bottom. So that the rebound off the bottom almost is the evidence to, hey, it doesn't really matter if we're in a recession or not. Fun to talk about, but... 
again, the blog kind of talks about, hey, we may be in a recession, but then my point is that I'm not sure it really matters. Yeah, the rip higher we've seen here recently too, to be fair to people listening here, it could very well signify that we're out of a, coming out of a bear market or it could just be a really vicious bear market rally, which some of the, the best returns talking on a weekly, monthly, quarterly basis have actually happened inside of bear markets going back, I believe, and I don't have the exact stats in front of me, but going back to 2008, 2009, I want to say in the spring of 09, I want, no, it had to, I I don't know when it was, but it was something like a 19% rally in like three weeks. So of course, we're not going to know until after this episode, you know, looking back a few years, whether or not we actually came out of a, a bear market or if this was just a bear market rally on the recession call though, I mean, we're in a recession though, right? Two consecutive quarters of negative real... I mean, I don't think there's any... I don't know if I said this in the blog or not, but I was definitely thinking when I wrote it. I have never heard anybody ever offer the explanation of, even though we've had two consecutive back-to-back quarters of negative GDP growth, we really have to wait for some other data to come out. Never in my life, I'm 55 years old, I've never heard anyone ever say that until like two months ago. Oh, and branding's so, a powerful thing. Right, exactly right. So classical definition, Aaron, yeah. I mean, that's what it is, right? That's what we've always said it is. I don't care what a political party says is the classical definition of a recession. That's what we've always used. And the data points to that, hey, we are actually in a recession. Now you look at the yield curve inversions, you look at our Moncon modeling. I mean, it's all saying that if we are not in a recession right now, we will definitely have one in the very near future, so... Can you explain what is MonCon? What are the factors that go into it and and kind of where we are right now, according to MonCon? So I'll, I'll start off by just by saying this. Go find the blog that I just wrote. It has a link to the original blog that I wrote, which explains MonCon. So there's a couple of different types of investors. I'm going to make the analogy of it's like people who get on a plane. I get on a plane. I just want to have the best ride possible from Reagan National to Phoenix, Arizona. I don't ask the pilot what's going on inside the jet engine. I don't ask the pilot to see the maintenance records. I just get on and I trust that everything. Okay, so to explain MonCon would be like explaining how the jet engine is working and what the maintenance records. So I will just say this. We take a lot of different economic inputs, and some of them are actually really interesting, and we're not creating this data ourselves. We buy this data, and then we look at it and make our own opinion based on it. But some of the data that we look at it is how many times a day is the word recession being Googled in Google? So it's not just like crazy economic data. There's actually some behavioral stuff that goes into it too. And you can look at it and say, okay, we've always been looking at this. How accurate is it that these 10 things are good at predicting a recession? So if you remember back to the 80s where we used to have DEFCON, well, we still have it now, but like (laughs) DEFCON where you're like, hey, nuclear war is imminent. DEFCON 5, this is a little counterintuitive, but DEFCON 5 is sort of like everything is at the lowest level of threat, right? And one is like the missiles are in the air, duck and cover under your desk at the schoolhouse, right? We've all seen the movies where they talk about (laughs) DEFCON 1. Right. So (laughs) ElfCon 1 for Santa Claus fans. Yeah, And, and really War Games with Matthew Broderick when he was like 13 years old is probably one of the best movies on that. But so five is normal. So since we've been watching this thing, it's never come off five with the exception of one time 
when it went from five to one basically overnight when the COVID thing hit. So it, it's not it's not a crystal ball. It's not designed to predict events. It's designed to look at economic indicators and assign a probability of whether or not there is going to be a recession. So the way it works is it says as Monocon goes from five to four to three, two to one, it's saying like, hey, it's becoming more and more probable that we will have a recession in the short term. So five to four, 50% of the time, it goes from four back to five. So a move from five to four is pretty insignificant or almost irrelevant. When it goes to three, it almost always goes to one, 100% of the time. So we're at three right now. And so what three says is, hey, in some of our models where we're just managing the single stock models, if the single stock models say we're going to sell one of the 20 stocks that we own, Instead of taking that money and reinvesting it back into another stock, we just take a pause on it. We wait. And then this is going to sound really counterintuitive. When it says Moncon 1, the missiles are in the air, except they're not really in the air. We start putting the money back to work. That's a very high probability that we've hit some sort of bottom in terms of recession expectations. So that's roughly how it's supposed to work. It's just something that we watch. I'll tell you the great thing about the Moncon model is more so than its ability to predict a recession, has been a driver of us not taking action. So, as I said, it never came off five, with the exception of COVID. So, like, you think, all right, it didn't prompt any action in 2012. It didn't prompt any action in 2016. didn't prompt any action in December of 2018. So, when people were screaming, oh, God, you know, taper tantrum or interest rate increases or all this, you know, Fed's, Fed's overly tightening, We looked at it and we said, we don't think that there's a recession coming from this now. So we didn't change any investing strategy. And that was to clients' benefits because they stayed in. They didn't miss those 10 best days of recovery when everyone else is guessing. So we use the data to drive the decision-making or to drive not taking decisions. That's about as deep as I should go on that. Well, okay. So real quick though, what Moncon level are we at right now? Three. Three. Okay. Well- if you're listening to this and you want a deep dive into Moncon, let us know. And I think maybe, maybe we can do an episode if there's a lot of demand to no. really hear. No, no, please, <laughs> no. no. no I'm, I'm kidding. I mean, yeah, we would. But I would just say in the interim, because I think a podcast about Moncon would be extremely boring. We'd have like a few people listen to it. <laughs> just go to that link. I wrote it, the article back in 2017 or 2018 about, hey, here are the, and it has all of the maintenance records for the jet engine and, and everything. That goes so, into so just Google Monument Wealth Management, MonCon, M-O-N. Yeah. Or go to my last blog and the link's right there. Right. So. Well, and I think actually MonCon highlights a really key point that, you know, it got through some of the turbulent times in the market without selling, which to circle back to the Monument Wealth Management broken record, always have cash on hand. And so, you know, what can you do when you have market rallies like this? I think, Dave, you wrote about it in your blog that just came out. It is review your cash, see where you're at. Because now 11% move off the bottom, you know, and whether we go straight up from here or straight back down, raising cash off an 11% move short term is a smart strategy for the long term. So use your opportunities when you get them. And always focus around having that cash so you don't have to sell large portions of your portfolio when it's down 20 or more. And Moncon is part of the process, right? Moncon at a three is saying, hey, Review your cash levels. See where right. you're at. And on top of that, review your cash levels. And if you have depleted them and you're worried that the next 12 months, to Aaron's point, maybe it goes back down, well, then I think it's a it's probably a safer time to 
replenish your cash when we've had an 11% rally off the bottom, do it now. I mean, if the market goes back down, you'll feel like you were a genius. If the market goes back up, you'd be like, oh, well, I just, you know, timing wasn't perfect, but at least I did what made me feel good. I'll use an analogy. It's like gasoline for the car, right? Because gasoline prices are volatile. So everybody wants gasoline at $2.99 a gallon. And then all of a sudden you you fill your tank and then now you're buying gas at $5 a gallon and you're pissed off about that. And then you got a quarter of a tank left and the gas prices are now down in the mid fours. Do you wait for them to go back down to two before you fill up or do you fill up now? And then even if it does go back down to you'd be like, well, uh, you know, okay. So, but at least I wasn't buying it again at five. Same analogy. I just did that for my mower. I had gas in there and I waited for as long as I could, filled it up when prices had come down, right? You Wow. Because how many gallons does that mower hold? Like two, two gallons? Yeah, yeah, two to four. Wow, man. Right? And it's, it's <laughs> one of those things. You got <laughs> to have the cash. Off, right, yes. You got to have it. I don't want to pay anymore if I don't need to. I love that holding off for two gallons worth of gas, man. That's <laughs> hey, the there's state of Nate. Wrong, there's nothing the, wrong with frugality, okay? We just, <laughs> no, we just got some more state of the Nate there a little bit. <laughs> right? Some insight into Nate's <laughs> right, psychology. Yeah. Can we do a quick look ahead to earnings season? Anything you guys are reading about there? This may shock or may not shock a lot of people. I, for the most part, I don't really pay attention to earnings too much. I really don't. So earnings are obviously a very important input into capital markets and into the economy to you know get a state more broadly of, of, of how things are shaping up kind of on the street with consumers, with how... You know, corporations are faring. Everyone kind of gets that. But, you know, within individual companies, I will pay attention to an earnings report to get something anecdotally out of, you know, what's happening with the economy. There were some pretty bad reports with some of the major retailers here the last quarter with both Walmart and Target with some rising inventories. And we had some stock reactions that, that came because of that. But actually looking in and dissecting to see what revenue trends are and what margins are doing. You know, we'll do like a, a look back and sort of a, a postmortem. I'm interested to see how the quarters have shaped up as an earnings season is progressing. Like, I'll, you know, I'll check out FactSet and there's a few other places that we'll, we'll take a look at. But believe it or not, just as earning reports come in, it doesn't have too much, you know, input into how we do things day to day within, you know, Dave pointed out the single stock models. The stock price reactions are a big component to, to how we end up making buys and sells within those models, but we're not selecting stocks, you know, based off of a good earnings report or a bad earnings report. So sorry to sound a little cavalier right there, but I just, yeah, earnings season, great, fun. You know, I used to work for a little investment bank. Earnings season was a big deal because that's what our job was, was to actually figure out very minute details down to the, you know, penny, like no stone left unturned for an earnings report. Like that's, that's what I did in my old job, and it's sort of refreshing that I don't have to stay up till 2 in the morning during earnings season looking at stuff that no one really cares about. Yeah, we're kind of coming up on the end of traditional earnings season right now, and as of last week, there have been about close to 1,000 companies that reported. That's off the top of my head, but I like the bespoke research report that comes out on earnings and stuff. And I, too, have stopped looking at the individual companies' earnings reports because I just... I just feel like they're just so canned. Everything is managed to it. Unless somebody massively misses something, it's really not news anymore. And then furthermore, to say that we don't talk about earnings doesn't mean it's not incorporated. Our models that we use to, to select stock, there are inputs into the models that have to do with earnings. But 
some of the things that are pretty interesting is that given that everybody feels like there's a recession and everybody feels bad about the economy and you look at some of these sentiment reports, I mean, right now, I'm going to say 72% of the companies that have reported have beat their earnings estimates and 71% have beaten their revenue estimates. Now, everybody's managing their earnings and revenue anyway, so that shouldn't really surprise anybody, but the amount of companies that have missed their earnings by quarter are down in the mid 20% ranges for both revenue and, and earnings. So not terrible when you think that all the indicators are saying that we're in a recession and we're raising interest rates. We're going to, you know, probably squash some profit margins, but kind of interesting. I take expectations for earnings season, whether it's earnings, revenue, whatever, kind of with a grain of salt, as a lot of people should. I'd be more interested, Dave, you mentioned bespoke, I think, or maybe it was facts at the percentage of companies that have beaten the analyst expectations. I would be curious to see a study of how many companies have magically beaten their earnings expectations by a penny. Come on, Dave, to your point, they're, man, they're, they're managing to these expectations. So it's a little contrived from quarter to quarter. And just another reason I honestly don't pay too much attention to any individual earnings report. I'm going to jump right on that train. You know, it's a managing the expectations. So whether the firms are managing it or talking to the analysts, now where the beat rate is useful to me to look at, I think similar, there's not a lot I do on the front end with trying to estimate earnings. I want a postmortem report of how did they come in. Now, CEOs are usually great at managing earnings, except when they have to manage them significantly lower. Because the goal is, right, manage the expectations so you beat your earnings, support the price. You know, so it's really comparing it to the long-term average. I believe the long-term average is pretty close to Dave, where you said like in that mid to high seventies. So we're beating right along average, you know, so for earnings expectations, it's really what the market's pricing in and the market is doing a fairly good job of being historically normal. It doesn't feel like it. It may not look like it because narrative drives a lot of the sentiment, but when you look at the numbers, it's normal for lack of a better word. Here's something else about normal too. The most recent bespoke report that talks about earnings had this interesting chart out that said, what was the average stock price's reaction when they beat or miss their earnings? And so the average stock price reaction to company XYZ announces that they've beat their earnings by a penny, to Aaron's point, or more than that. The average change or reaction to that news is the stock goes up a whopping 1.5%. I'm just going to look out and see if I can see the the market right now. But like, I think the market today is up 1.5%. So, okay, but what about when they miss? Right, Because you would think that, okay, that's the bad news. The average reaction to a company missing their earnings is down 1.8%. So like this whole like, do they beat, do they miss? To your point, it's kind of like the average, it's expected to Aaron's point. Nobody's really, everybody's managing to it, so... So does it even matter if somebody beats or misses? Yeah, and, and the the stats that you just cited there, Dave, with you know earnings misses and earnings beats, it's not always earnings that people are are looking out for. Depending on what part of the market, what sector, and what company in particular, people aren't necessarily looking at a top line number, right? The people who are quote in the know, whether it's you know longtime analysts or you know, anyone over on the buy side, which is known as, you know, hedge funds and institutional investors and mutual funds, they might not actually be looking at an earnings number, 
right? They may say for this quarter, we know earnings are going to suck or we, we don't care where they're at. But if we see some sort of a key performance indicator, a KPI, and Twitter for the longest time was a big case study with this. And I, let's, let's actually look at Netflix. I think it was Netflix this last quarter or the quarter before. I can't remember how earnings or, or revenue stacked up to expectations, but Netflix for the first time in their history had announced a subscriber decrease, right? So be damned on, on earnings or revenue or cash flows. You actually saw a shrinkage in the business in a very big KPI. So that's, that's something else. Another nuance with earnings season is it's not always necessarily about top line, bottom line beats and misses. All right, so let's move on from earning season. No. I feel like we <laughs> beat that <laughs> dead horse. I understand your opinion. No, no, no. it doesn't really matter. You asked the question. Right. I did. Everybody's screaming in the car, no, keep going. going. <laughs> Can we do a little bit of a deeper dive on, on the Fed rate hikes and kind of where you guys see that going? I think Nate's our Fed expert here. I'm looking at him across the table right now. He's pulling something up on his laptop. I imagine it's going to be the the CME Group's FedWatch tool. So, Nate, why don't you regale us with the FedWatch? Yeah, tell us about the CME FedWatch tool. It sounds like an amazing thing to keep a track of. Such a great tool in that it does <laughs> such complex math that I can't even go to it. You thought Moncon was complicated? Fed tool is also right up there. What it's essentially trying to do is look at the market, and specifically, I believe, the bond market to try and determine what is the likelihood of a Fed rate range at a certain meeting date. So the two meetings that I'm keying in on is usually the next one and end of the year. Now, these are priced dynamically, like day by day, minute by minute. So yesterday when I was looking at it, very different results than when you pull it up in the morning, and they can change intraday. The big theme that you know I'm seeing is it looks like right now that there's about a two-thirds chance, 66%, of a 50 basis point hike at the next meeting. And that's what you're hearing in the market. Again, I'm going to get back to the market as a tool of expectations. If everything is exactly like it is and it's all priced in, as Dave has been saying, there's no way to make money besides participating in the market. So really, market is doing a good job of pricing in at least a 50 basis point moving forward. Now, to any changes to that, you get market movement. The next meeting, while important, 50 to 75, that's all cool and dandy. It'll be a fun, I hope, office bet here on the desk, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, I'm looking at year end and what we call the terminal rate. And that's what the Fed is really trying to find is what is the ending hiking rate? They've always said they were going to front load hikes. So seeing 75s while historic really was right on brand, right on messaging for them. So moving out to look at the end of 2021, where do, where do the markets think we're going to be? The markets are pricing just about even probability, slight edge to a 350 basis point, sorry, 3.5% interest rate near the end of the year. There's a good amount of people that I think 325. So from where we're at today at 225, that means we have 101% and 125 left of hiking by year end, according to what the markets are saying. I mentioned it quickly in my state of the union, state of Nate at the beginning, but the market is pricing in about what the Fed is saying. Fed is saying 3.4 by end of the year. Markets 3.25 to 3.5. We'll see how that changes as the data comes in because the Fed is no longer on a preset path. For a while, they were saying we're doing 75 at this meeting. Now it's data dependent. So you should see some volatility in the market because of that because we just don't have the clarity. Every data point right. could change the mind. Yeah. The other interesting thing too is, okay, great, 50 base. But do you recall off the top of your head what it was two days ago? I'm pretty I think com- it was like 75 base. Yeah, points, wasn't I, it? I actually have a snip. It was 66% for a 75 basis point hike 
I believe yesterday. Right. So that was what I was saying. These price dynamically overnight, we went from a 75 to a 25. Right. So interesting. Right. So you, you came down 25 basis points or, or one quarter of 1%. So, and what's happened in the market in the past two days? I believe it's gone up. It's gone up. Yes. I can assure you of that. And so can everybody else because it's been a pretty nice two days, but so great. Inflation comes in better than expected. Not actually it was hard, barely better than expected, but still right. Not worse than expected. The market's prediction of interest rate hike goes down one quarter of 1% to from 75 basis points or three quarters of 1% down to half a percent. And then that just kind of goes back to my George Costanza comment like 20 minutes ago, which was if you see the reverse of all of this. And so if it's the inflation report that's driving the expectations of the Fed increases and the Fed increases are kind of driving consumer sentiment and the more stock market rally, here's my thought on this. What happens if I'm right? Not that I'm right, but, but let's just say for a second that it really is the money growth that has been driving inflation and more specifically the price of fuel, right? But still there's more money chasing fewer goods because of this injection into the economy over 14 months ago. And that means inflation is going to keep coming down because the money growth is completely falling off a cliff. They're just not injecting anymore. So if you see inflation keep getting better for no other reason than the money growth has gone away, what will happen to the market if the expectations for a Fed raise go from 50 to 25 basis points? Because I actually think that that we're talking about a bet across the desk. I'll make a bet on the podcast. My outside bet, again, it doesn't matter from right or wrong. I think that there is a higher probability that it goes from 50 to 25 basis points than from 50 back to 75 basis points. And if that happens, we're going to see another 10% up on the market. Maybe five, but I'm just saying, right? I mean, that's, and then, okay, not meaning to get too much into the, the weeds on this thing, but what was really interesting to me on the little bit about the inflation report, I'll dig into it more on the weekend, but on the surface, it seems like to me, the big factor on inflation coming down was gasoline prices, which everybody knows are down. I just actually saw when we were driving yesterday, gas for under $4 a gallon out in Warrington. So what's been kind of interesting to me is that nothing else stepped in to take the place in the inflation report of the gasoline. So in other words, everything else was flat. Gasoline came down, inflation comes down. It shows the enormity of the whole thing. And, you know, gasoline contributed. So in June, the inflation, the month inflation was up 1.3% in June. So inflation was up for the month of June, 1.3%. And one half of 1% or 50 basis points of that was due to gasoline. And then in July's month-to-month report, it actually subtracted 36 basis points from the month-on-month swing, which was a 90 basis point swing between the 51 to the minus 39. I mean, that's huge. And it gives you a sense of the enormity of fuel prices in the calculation of inflation. So if fuel prices are indeed coming down, and nothing else is stepping in to take its place. How much more likely is it that inflation actually keeps going down at an accelerated rate and we actually go from an expected 50 basis point to 25 basis point? So sorry, I know that's a lot, but right, I mean, <laughs> this is why I'm saying I actually think there's a pretty decent chance that we see the expectations for interest rate increases go down rather than go back up. I would tend to agree with you. I would love to make a bet, but if we're on the same side, it's going to be difficult because okay. I do think so. I think a 25 
it's more likely than moving to a 75 or higher from that 50 right. that's priced right. in. And, and, and we'll expected. see a rally if that happens. Oh, for sure. I mean, the rally is partly based on the Fed's term, once again, getting to terminal. And the markets are saying when the Fed pivots, that's terminal or close to it. And that's all they want to know. They just want to know the rate. Markets hate uncertainty. It doesn't matter what kind it is or how small of uncertainty it is. So the fact that we just don't know where that rate is, and we are negative. I mean, we're coming off very negative sentiment. So there's a lot of chances for if data is better than what people think to see some positive action. I'll also throw this into if the Fed does come out and do 75 basis points when the market's expecting 50, you'll see all these recent gains go away. So I want to wrap up the podcast by doing a little round robin. Each of you just share something that's on your mind that we haven't talked about already. Well, skip me because I feel like I just did it with the inflation. Great. Thing, so Dave's okay. done. <laughs> go ahead. That was Aaron. easy. <laughs> Something I'm looking at here now is if you unpack the stock markets from a market cap perspective, so looking at large, mid, and small caps here in the U.S., we started to see some burgeoning relative outperformance of smaller stocks. And so what the implication of that's going to be on a go-forward basis is I'll be interested to see there, but for, for clients and readers and people who have heard us discuss the flexible asset allocation model, this past month when we conducted our rebalance, that's an area where we're actually quite aggressive right now in terms of having added month over month. So I'm going to be curious to see if small cap stocks, so smaller company stocks here in the U.S. are going to continue some some outperformance. Yeah, because just to throw in a data point there, I was talking before about how the S&P has basically had an 11% this quarter bound. The Russell 2000, not the Russell 2000 growth value, but the straight up Russell 2000. Up 14% this quarter. So there you go. I mean, there's some data. All right. And Nate? I think if we haven't talked about inflation enough, there's one yes, breakout. let's talk about that inflation. Is, Just yes. keep it rolling. It's the breakout between services and goods inflation. So that's a fascinating one to me because, you know, in, COVID, in the pandemic, we were heavy, heavy goods, and there's pent-up demand across the economy. Services demand could not come back as quickly as goods demand could. You know, goods demand, we saw big spike for, which caused, I think, a lot of some of the inflation pressures. You know, in this most recent report, you know, goods inflation was down around 7% year over year. That's a positive for the economy. On the other end, you, I'm sorry, you saw services inflation up 5.5. As the pandemic goes away, economy gets more open. You know, airline prices were down in this report as well. So travel's good and alive. Now it's even cheaper. Demand for services is going to keep pushing things higher as long as we have a strong job market. So it's the dichotomy there, right? It's how do you manage an economy which has goods prices coming down, but service prices going up? Is it just working off the demand from the pandemic era? It seems like we're moving in that direction. So that's the battle that I'm watching for fun. Great. Well, as per usual, with everything that comes out of Monument, there was a lot of opinion in that conversation. (laughs) So thank you guys so much for sharing your your passion for the markets really comes through. And, And Nate... Again, we're so happy to have you at Monument. Welcome to the pod. You fantastic yeah, debut. You. I'm happy to be here. Hopefully, the many state more. of Nate. We'll have to do this again. <laughs> It'll be the name of his blog. There you go.
The previous presentation by Monument Wealth Management LLC, Monument, was intended for general information purposes only. No portion of the presentation serves as the receipt of or as a substitute for personalized investment advice for Monument or any other investment professional of your choosing. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and it should not be assumed that future performance of any specific investment or investment strategy or any non-investment related or planning services, discussion, or content will be profitable, be suitable for your portfolio or individual situation, or prove successful. Monument is neither a law firm nor accounting firm, and no portion of its services should be construed as legal or accounting advice. No portion of this content should be construed by a client or prospective client as a guarantee that he should will experience a certain level of results if Monument is engaged or continues to be engaged to provide investment advisory services. A copy of Monument's current written disclosure brochure discussing our advisory services and fees is available upon request or at monumentwealthmanagement.com.